Let's welcome him. And we are so glad to have you with us this morning. We, uh, David and I have actually known one another since seminary days. And so it's good, after all these years, to renew an old acquaintance. And we are just delighted that you are with us this morning. Welcome to worship. I'm hooked up, so that's good, isn't it? I'll be there in a second, Elaine. <laughs> He's coming this direction just momentarily. Good morning. Thank you, Elaine. It's good to see you today. Yes, ma'am. Bless you. Oh. Well, good morning, everyone. I got all hooked up and came apart, so... Uh, that tells you about how good this sermon's going to be today. It's coming apart on us. Well, I am so happy to be here on Sweeten Creek Road in this most wonderful church and delighted to see my good friend the Browns. And I have known Timothy's family for 50 years. Now, I didn't know Timothy till I came to Asheville to a few years ago, but just to show you what a small world it is, my father, who was a longtime Baptist pastor, was the pastor of Timothy's grandfather. And Mr. Brown in Mount Airy. And I, um, I worked my way through high school and college years working for Mr. Brown. That would be Timothy's grandfather. He sold uh, shoes. It was the Jessup Brown Shoe Store in Mount Airy. And that's where I cut my teeth. And I am so glad. I love this family. I'm delighted to see you all today, my friend Pam. So many familiar faces. Thank you for being here today. And I'm grateful to Timothy to allow me to share the pulpit for this morning. So I hope you have your Bibles because we're going to look into it today. And I want to tell you how uh, pleased I am about this church. I love your growth. I told Timothy the last time I stood here on a Wednesday night that I don't know of a better location on this most busy Sweeten Creek Road. And I pass by here all the time and think of you and pray for you. So I'm delighted to share these moments this morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we're going to talk today about uh, what to do until Jesus returns. What to do until Jesus Christ returns. Now, before we begin, I think it'd be good if you reach around uh, to a neighbor or two sitting close to you. And I wish you'd say this. Turn to your neighbor right now and say, I'm in great shape for the shape I'm in. Would you turn to your neighbor and say that this morning and (laughs) greet some folks all around you? We're going to have a good time today. (laughs) All right, with your Bibles open, let me begin by telling you what we want to talk about today, and then we'll share some few minutes before we leave today. I come today to proclaim to you the Lord Jesus Christ, who will one day return. One day soon, the Bible says, Jesus will come back to earth in God's time and in his own way. God himself will draw the curtain on human history and bring this world to its proper conclusion. Now, if you're reading the newspapers or listening to the news at all, you'd understand that the waves and times that we live in are so incredibly difficult today that it doesn't make strong or hard for us to imagine that one day Jesus will come because of the shape the world's in. But here's my question. What of this returning king? How should we prepare as a people of God for his return to earth? In the church today, and not so much this church, but in most churches, even in Asheville today, there is such complacency 
such coldness to the anticipated return. We act as if He will never come again. So what ought we to do? How should a believer then live? In 1588, if you remember your history, with the defeat of the Spanish Armada, a naval tournament was held for the victorious British Navy. The admiral at the time, Admiral Drake, if you remember, had invited Queen Elizabeth I to come to that Navy tournament and to award prizes. The officer in charge of the event that day issued written orders for Navy personnel. I found this so interesting. He writes, on the account of the dazzling countenance of the Queen, Her Majesty, all naval personnel upon receiving their prize should shield their eyes. Hence, the origination of the salute. It was in courtesy and in honor of the Queen that the salute that we understand today, and very strategic to say this on the day after our uh, celebration as a nation and commemoration of Veterans Day, uh, to originate the salute. So we in the church do the same thing. We await the return of Jesus Christ. And in process, we salute Him now with our obedience and on His return with our praise. So what shall we do? What shall First Baptist Church Arden do until His return? I want you to listen carefully today to the reading of God's Word as we talk about this. We must live in the expectancy of His return. While we wait, the Bible says we must watch and we must be ready. So take your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and in honor of the infallible, unchanging Word of God, I'm going to ask you to stand as I read the Scripture today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Follow along in your Bibles. Hear now the Word of God. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. But test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. And may God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the One who calls you is faithful, and He will do it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask now that You take this Simple words and drive them supernaturally into our hearts. I pray for this beloved church, for Pastor Timothy, her people, this place, this church. And pray, Father, your Holy Spirit would reign with such freedom 
that the walls of this church would just simply have to expand for the number of people coming to know you. I pray this church among uh, those in this city would be one that stands firmly to say we are ready for the return of Jesus Christ. And until that moment, give this church the energy, the strength, and the wisdom to do what you've commanded her to do through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Be seated. I want to talk for a few minutes about what to do until Jesus returns. I've broken it this morning into three areas. When I saw your pastor's notes from last week, Elaine, my goodness, what an incredible young man. I come with a blank piece of paper today, and I just pray that God will speak through this simple one when I think about the strength of your pastor today. But here's what I want you to understand. I want you to see three things this morning based on this scripture. Hang with me. First, I want to speak on your accountability to the church and to your pastor. Oh, it is so fun to be here when Timothy's not. Because you know what? I'm going to talk about him today. Don't let him know that I'm talking about him. But I want to talk about Pastor Timothy, this young man that I love so dearly. Look at verse 11. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Now what is Paul telling the church to do in these moments before Jesus Christ returns? He's reminding the church of the edification, the mutual support for each other that we need in the body of Christ. There is no better way to accomplish this than to improve matters of leaders and leadership related to the local church. In this case, God calls us to acknowledge those in leadership. What am I saying? I'm saying to this church, you cannot be indifferent to your pastor. And pastors should never be strangers to us. We are to seek their friendship and cheerfully assist them in their work, just as the church will do for Jesus Christ. There are specific tasks that Jesus and the church have given to the pastor. And it's in relation to the pastor's work that we offer our salute and our respect. Notice what the Bible says. It begins by saying, recognize those who work hard among you. You understand, don't you, that leadership in the church, whether it's your pastor, whether it's Elaine, whether it's Stephen, whether it's the deacons or your life group or Sunday school teachers, you understand leadership is never a matter of privilege. It's a matter of service. The real pastor among us is one who serves, not one who lords, but one who offers diligent, faithful, self-sacrificing work. And so the church must honor our pastors because not of who he is, but for whom he works. He is accountable. Timothy is accountable to the great shepherd of the sheep for the way he models Christ himself, how he rightly divides the word of truth, how he cares for each believer, and how he leads this local New Testament congregation. Now listen to me carefully this morning. I love the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like most of you in the room, I have grown up in the church. My own father was a pastor. Listen carefully. Timothy has no idea what I'm saying today. He didn't ask me to preach on this topic. I want you to understand that clearly. I come to you 
not knowing everything about First Baptist Arden, but knowing that as a church in this day, we must reestablish some relationships to be ready to salute when Jesus returns. So understand, I'm preaching today only in the power of the Holy Spirit. I know nothing of the basis of your church. I'm only preaching the Word of God today. Let it fall where it will by the work of the Holy Spirit today. The Bible says literally, when we recognize those who work among you, it literally means to the one who stands before you. I'm so grateful to be in this pulpit today. To understand that Timothy stands here week after week, standing before you, faithful, diligent, self-sacrificed. Understand with me then, pastors are the gift of God to the church. As a result, we are to love and to recognize our pastors. Now, hang with me. I know some of you are already antsy. Just hang with me. Let me explain. Secondly, we are to respect and regard those, the Bible says, who are over you in the Lord. Work in your hearts to acknowledge those who work for you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. When the Bible says over you, it means to take the lead. It is the pastor who is to lead us. Authority in the church is not assumed by power, but rather it's given out of respect and responsibility for those that the shepherd places, the great shepherd places in the church in our midst. God, the Holy Spirit, does the placing. Our task is to follow. Notice this leadership extends to All God called leadership in the church. I mentioned a moment ago to your incredible staff. Elaine was so gracious this morning. She and I were in school together, as we said. I won't tell you how long it's been since Elaine's been out of school, but it's been 40 years since I left the seminary, so uh, she looks so much younger than I do. But I want you to understand today, all of us who are in leadership in the church are there because God has placed us. And the Bible says deacons, Sunday school teachers, teachers, all are working together in the Lord. But remember this. We're never to follow in the church leadership blindly. Pastors must earn the right to be followed. For we must remember that they themselves are subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize the strength of that relationship and the double portion of judgment that falls on those who are leaders in the church. The judgment to be right, to be faithful, to be above reproach, to be blameless, to be teachers who rightly divide the word of truth. There is incredible pressure. Hebrews 13 says it this way, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. My early church ministry was as a youth pastor in a a large and prominent church. I was new to ministry. I was about as green as you could be. But I was so excited. This was 40, 45 years ago now. My pastor at the time was a good man, an older man. But even in my young age and in my lack of sophistication and theology and lack of understanding and training I was still receiving, there was just something about his preaching which I did not understand. He never preached with fervency. 
there was never any clarity or purpose. Now, the sermons were good. They were homilies, short encouragements, and most of the time, feel-good messages. There was just something wrong. I left that church and went on and the rest of my days. And That pastor, when he retired, called me one day. He used to make such fun of me, Elaine. He said um, he knew I was at a conservative bent in my life. And he said, boy, David, he said, you, you must think the world's flat the way you approach the Bible. You just believe it word for word. He, he'd, he'd make fun of me. It was all right. He called me, though, years later. And this is what he said. He said, David, I've, I'm retiring but I've had an incredible dream. He said, Jesus appeared. This is the same pastor. He said, Jesus appeared before me in the dream. And he said to me, you did not preach the cross. Oh, David, how I wished I had preached the cross. My heart broke for him, and, but more so for the church. But that is not the issue here. We salute a young man, a pastor, who preaches the whole gospel without reservation. He preaches truth, not fable. He prescribes direction, not suggestion. He preaches encouragement, not anger. He does from time to time and will announce warning and admonishment all according to the Bible, but he'll deliver it all in love. That's Timothy Brown. Praise God for a pastor who is not afraid of the truth. You know, that cannot be said for every church in Buncombe County today. Then the Bible says, respect those who admonish you. Admonish means... To put into mind, every God-called pastor and teacher serves to warn and to instruct the church from time to time. It's the highest of responsibilities that your pastor has to put truth into the church. Someone once said it like this, you don't let a patient prescribe his or her own medication. The doctor prescribes the prescription and the patient does the taking. So it is in the life of the church. God has provided leadership. It's a gift to this church. Our task is to follow. Not to create confusion. Not to build roadblocks or cause dissension. Not to pull back and diminish. Not to complain and disrupt. But to love, to support, and to follow. How then should we relate to church leadership? Look at verse 12. The Bible says, recognize them. The leader of every New Testament church is worthy of respect, not by virtue of the office or by title, but because of fidelity to the task and the quality of life. There's no one in our sphere of living and life to whom we should have more affection and esteem than our pastor. I can say that about my pastor. I love him. He's a man of faithful attention to Scripture. He loves the congregation. 
He speaks truth. And I like to say he pays the rent so that he can preach prophetically. The way he pays the rent is to pastor the people so that on Sunday morning he preaches the truth in the power of the Holy Spirit and our people respond. It is no different at First Baptist Church. When Timothy and Lori return next week, shower them with affirmation and appreciation. I can tell you by my own experience, you are not aware of his sleepless nights. The overwhelming burden he feels for every single member of this congregation and the huge responsibility he shoulders in leading this flock. Let it be said of the First Baptist Church that while Pastor Timothy and his staff are not perfect, they're not perfect men and women, but let it be said they are yours. And we will honor them until Jesus comes or until that pastor and staff may be called away from our midst. We can do no other, the Bible says, for the time is short and Jesus will soon return. Oh, but listen. Oh, I speak this with truth today. Should any pastor of this church ever divert from spiritual truth, ever have a moral failure, or ever preach a perverse gospel, then the church in the pew must stand up and show that person the door. But absent of those issues, your task is to love your pastor and your staff and to follow him to the gates of hell if need be. So that men and women and boys and girls in Asheville can come to know the living, reigning, returning Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Look at chapter 13. Look at verse 13. The Bible says, hold them in regard with love. When the church recognizes God's leadership placed in our midst, then we honor and respect them. And the Bible says when that happens that peace reigns in the church. Now notice, this is a command. So so what's a pastor to do? He's to shepherd his people, to love us, and to lead us toward heaven. There is no greater calling on earth than that of pastor-teacher. The Bible says live in peace. In this sense, it means an achievement of mutual respect between leaders and people. That's the way it ought to be. This is your accountability to the church called First Baptist. This is your accountability to your pastor named Timothy Brown. Look at the second thing. You not only have a responsibility to the church and to your pastor, but you have a responsibility to others in the church. Look at verse 14. And I will speed up the process. Hold on. It's not so bad. We've only been through two verses, but do hold on. Verse 14, what does he say? He says, live in peace and we urge you. Brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened disheartened, and help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Now Paul begins to address not only the leadership of the church and our responsibilities to them, but to the discipline, order, and relationship within the church. This is a responsibility pressed into every single member of this church. Every one of us who's a believer, whether man or woman, Boy or girl, what does it say? 
it says first, warn those who are idle. What does it mean, idle? It comes from a Greek word that really refers to a soldier who has stepped out of rank. To a soldier who is uh, disorderly in his behavior because he has left his post. The injunctive here is to confront them. There were some in the Thessalonica church that Paul was addressing who had simply sat down. They weren't working. They relied on the generosity of others. Not only for the food that they ate, but for the church and her buildings that they had, whatever shape it would have been in. In the life of the church, every believer has a responsibility to care for each other. That's why we have Sunday school, life group, connect groups. That's why we have prayer groups. It is why we engage counselors and helpers and folks who love other people. The Bible says the church has the responsibility to warn and to admonish and to lead back into church those who stepped away. The Bible says, love them back. I would imagine today if you could look at your membership role, you look at your history here in the church, there have been some that have stepped away from you. The Bible says love them back. It's so true, isn't it, that a small number of people actually do the work required for the entire church. A small number of people tend to support faithfully and generously the, the budgets of the church. It should not be so in a New Testament church. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if this is your church home, until Jesus comes or calls you home or away, you have a responsibility to support this church, cheerfully do the work, and be counted on when Pastor Timothy calls. But if you're hiding in the shadows today, absent from faithful work, giving little or nothing to the church, you're not living as you ought. The Bible calls it sin. And what else does it say? It says encourage the timid. Encourage the timid means to encourage the little souls, the Bible says. Not little in stature, not little in, in who they are, but little because they're frightened and discouraged. The faint-hearted. This is really for those who are faint-hearted. There are always those in the church among us who are hurting, who have a need, who are discouraged, who are despondent or helpless. And it's our responsibility in the church of Jesus Christ to love these people and to help them. The wealth of combined experience in this room, just as I'm looking out, the combined experience in this room from life and from your church background and from loving Jesus like you do means to me there's no one in this room at the sound of my voice today who cannot find someone to love and to help. Put your arms around them. Lift them up. Give them hope, help, and heart. If we drive away today on Sweeten Creek Road and any of us see an accident, someone hurting, I doubt there is anyone in this room who would not be moved to action. How then, how dare we turn away from the hurt inside this building that finds itself from time to time? The Bible then says help the weak. This refers to moral and spiritual problems. 
the emphasis quite often in the church is on the strong, when in reality it should be on the weak. Everyone should be welcomed into First Baptist Church. Sinner, reprobate, lover of Jesus, old saint, or a new sinner. This church must be a place of healing. I like to say there ain't no misfits here. If you have a problem, you fit right in. All of us have concerns, needs, sins to be forgiven, hearts to be helped. Don't shy away from it, church. Step forward and together we can help each other. We just recently went through the World Series. What a series of games. Incredible. In the fall of 1951, when television was in its infancy, the World Series was being telecast from coast to coast in black and white. In Southern California... A veteran of baseball, Ty Cobb, was watching every movement and every moment of the World Series that year, which included the New York Yankees. He watched when his good friend Joe DiMaggio was up to bat. And as Ty Cobb watched, he saw that uh, DiMaggio needed a coaching tip or two from his living room in California, he called and got through to DiMaggio in the dugout. From a distance of 3,000 miles, he began to tell him how to improve his stance, how to choke up on the bat a little bit, and how to look for the ball at the right moment. Joe DiMaggio went to bat two more times in that game. Hearing what his friend Ty Cobb had taught him, history records DiMaggio went to bat and knocked the two home runs that won the series for the Yankees that year. Now, if a baseball expert can detect the smallest details of the game and help a friend across of thousands of miles, is it too hard to believe that God could use you in this place to do something when you're much closer to someone in need? It's the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. And I'll tell you, should I come back a year from now and you do this and proclaim Jesus and help people in the power of the Holy Spirit, you won't be able to find a seat in this church. Because Asheville's waiting for a church that will rise up and say, we love Asheville. And because we love Jesus Christ, we take the gospel to Asheville. Here is the word. Finally, the Bible says, be patient with everyone. How in the world can we be patient with each other? Well, it's accomplished in two or three short ways. It's in these verses here. How can we be patient with everyone? It begins by suggesting pay no one back wrong for wrong. The Bible says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Paul says in Romans, do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The best evidence of Christian maturity is non-retaliation for
for personal wrongs. We are to be patient and forgiving with everyone. Then the Bible says we ought always to be kind. We must endeavor to produce that which is beneficial to others. You hear this, what God is saying to us today? He's, he's reminding us we have an accountability to this church and to our pastor. He's admonishing us to remember that we have a responsibility to each other in the pew. Oh, but finally, the Bible says we have an obligation to Jesus Christ himself. Look at verses 16 and following. Paul begins to speak up in rapid, rapid pace, a staccato-like phrasing. He's teaching, he's bringing his teaching in for a landing. Someone once said, these are the standing orders of the church. These are the individual responsibilities. Look at it, beginning verse 16. Rejoice always. Now, it's not a command to feel happy at all times with your outward circumstances, for some things are just not happy. But the Bible says this is not joy. Joy is our basis of relationship with Jesus. So regardless of whatever comes our way, we still have joy in the midst of our circumstances. doesn't mean we're always happy. But at the core of our lives, the Bible teaches us it's a command to rejoice always. Just as we sang today, as Stephen and Elaine led us in the wonderful hymns and songs today, rejoice always. Someone said the opposite of joy is not sorrow. The opposite of joy is unbelief. If you believe in Jesus Christ, there should be a resident joy in your heart, fanned along by the Holy Spirit, that gives you a willingness to face every tomorrow because He lives. The Bible also says that we should be thankful as well as rejoice. My cousin, my older cousin, gave her life to India. She was a, a missionary to India. And I remember in the early days, long before there was email or fax machines, and the only way to communicate that far wasn't even by phone. It was by letter. My cousin would write us handwritten letters from India. As a 10 or 11-year-old boy, I'd be so excited to get those letters that had unusual stamps in it. Sometimes she'd place a leaf from a strange plant or something I'd never seen, some little token of India, and it seemed to me like a, an entirely different world. I stood there in awe, and we'd read the letter as family. In one letter, she writes back about her work in a leper colony. That's where she gave her life, to lepers, and teaching them the things of Jesus. Even in those days, leprosy was the scourge of its own generation. People, as in Jesus' days, still in India, were fearful of lepers, wouldn't be around them, wouldn't touch them, for fear of the disease. But she ministered in these places to these people, she said they'd have church and there'd be, be a room like this full of people who had contracted leprosy. And she said it was so interesting to her that these lepers who found Jesus had such a deep-seated joy in their life. She wrote once about 
a hymn saying they had. And she said she was sitting in the little church there, and she said they were calling out hymns to sing. And one little, little lady stood up, and she had no fingers, no nose, no ears, for leprosy had eaten them away. But my cousin said it was so remarkable that that little lady would stand with gnarled hands with no fingers. And she would say, Can we sing? Count your many blessings. I am so moved by a person who can sing like that When I sometimes, with all that you and I have, cannot find the words to rejoice on a daily basis. The Bible says, pray continually, give thanks, do not quench the Spirit's fire. Oh, we just don't have time. I love this. I'd I'd love to spend time here. To deny the working and role the Holy Spirit is likened to the quenching of the of the Spirit, His burning presence. We quench the Holy Spirit in the church when we do not exercise our gifts or when we live in sin. Notice what else it says. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Do not devalue the preaching portion of each service. The highest task of your pastor is to preach the truth and Word of God. Um... Sermons, then, from your pastor are not to be taken lightly. Of course, the Bible says, notice, test everything. Hold on to what is good with your pastor. Then the Bible says, avoid every kind of evil. And then it begins to wrap up with this final verse from verse 24. 23 and 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Here's how we close. The Bible says that when Jesus returns, he will return swiftly like a thief in the night. He will come physically, the Bible says, for every eye shall see him. He will come triumphantly, the virgin-born Son of God, the one whose sinless life was given as a substitutionary atonement on the cross for us, the one who died, who was buried, and who rose again. But there's so much left to do until that day. There's so much work left for First Baptist Church. With all of this today comes an urgency to the work. What am I saying? Love your God-ordained pastor. Love the people in this church. Love those outside this church who need to know. Do the work and be faithful until He comes. As I mentioned, my father was a pastor in North Carolina. Fifty years ago, this experience happened. I used to love to go everywhere with him as a young boy, eight or nine. Um, as much as time would allow, one day when school was out, my father said, David, I want you to go with me. I have to preach a funeral. So I said, yes, sir, I'll go. He didn't tell me much. Our church had a little cemetery at the time. 
We were at best a small rural church to some degree, more on the outskirts of town than on the inside of town. I recall that day as I stood there with my father that a young couple drove up. They were coming that day to bury their little child. The baby had not lived long in its life, just a few days. I don't today, 50 years later, recall how that child died. I only remember the graveside service that day. They were not people of means. I remember there were very few people there that day. Only the two men who dug the grave, my father, me, and this young couple. What struck me was the starkness of that moment. A hearse pulled up, and the funeral director opened the back door of the hearse and reached in for the smallest casket I'd ever seen. A little white casket. So small he could carry it himself. I stood by and watched as the grave diggers were on hand to help him lower it in the ground. One of them had scampered down into that open grave and took the casket and placed it there. What a searing moment in my young life. I know now my father was trying to teach me life lessons. The parents were standing there softly crying, naturally. The workers had removed their hats and were standing around the grave. In that moment, it seemed to me as a young child, there is no hope. Then, my father spoke. And he said, quoting the very words of Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die, but shall live. We stood there as the workers began to put dirt on that little casket. It seemed to me so final, so jarring, I looked at parents who would never know the joy of that child, who would never hold that baby. It seemed so dark, so sad, and so over, but I heard the words my father spoke. And then, you know what happened? When the dirt covered the grave, the funeral director with my father reached around to the back of the hearse and brought out a cross, a white little cross, and they planted it on top of of that grave. To death, they struck with a cross. To the hurting hearts of those parents, they planted truth. And in that brief moment, there came hope that this was no end. It's only a transition in life that all of us will one day face. The cross, the powerful symbol of the gospel, an empty cross, the powerful symbol of the resurrection. This was that moment. A singular truth about the power of the gospel we believe. When we step back from the grave, someone, I think it was the grave digger, began to sing. There's a land that is fairer than day. And by faith, we can see it afar. For the Father waits over the way to prepare us a dwelling place there in the sweet by and by.
we shall meet on that beautiful shore. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. God help this church to take that gospel to a world that is so needy right up and down Sweeten Creek and into the city of Asheville and do it for His glory until He returns and until Jesus comes back to take this church and every other church that's His own to live with Him in glory forever. We salute our Jesus by listening and following our godly pastor, by caring for each other in this pew, and by loving a world Who needs a Savior? And everybody said, glory, hallelujah, amen. Let me pray for us as we close. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incomparable word today from 1 Thessalonians. We are your people, the sheep of your pasture. And may we at First Baptist Arden never, ever, ever be the same again till we follow you completely and love you more dearly with the rest of our days, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our song that we sing today, Tis 